In any moment, we may feel like we belong to one thing and not another. I belong to this community to which others don't. I belong to this statement, definitely not that one. I belong in this space way over here. Or perhaps I belong nowhere. The truth, we all belong to it all. That was 7A Selassie reading from her new book, You Belong, A Call for Connection. Welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. 7A is a meditation teacher and writer who lives in Brooklyn, New York. She was born in Ethiopia and grew up just outside Washington, D.C. A three-time cancer survivor, her writing explores the way in which we feel that we don't belong to ourselves, our bodies, and each other. And at a time when division seems insurmountable, her book provides creative new pathways to finding common ground. In this episode, I sit down with Sabine to discuss her life, her work, and how we can use meditation to rediscover our inherent belonging. Sabine Selassie, thank you for joining Tricycle Talks. Thank you for having me, James. Great to be here. It's great to see you. This is your first book. And so why don't you tell me how it came about and when you started writing it? So I started writing this book about uh, two and a half years ago. I was approached by my agent, Anna Geller, who asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book. And when we started exploring different blog posts and things I'd written, newsletters, this one post on belonging was the most popular thing I'd ever written and people had shared it. And it just seemed to be a theme that resonated and was also kind of one of the central themes of my life of not belonging or feeling like I didn't belong. Right. You write, I have been writing this book for almost a year. I have been living this book my entire life. That's interesting. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, many of us lived this theme of not belonging and finding belonging. And, you know, it's really a metaphor for finding home or finding freedom, finding um, some sense of ease and joy. There's one paradox that seems to run through the heart of the book. And you say, although we are not one, we are not separate. And although we are not separate, we are not the same. So what role does this paradox play in the book? Because it comes up again and again and again. Yeah, really, that's a maybe a more colloquial way to talk about the truth of the absolute and the truth of the relative, that paradox or doctrine of the two truths. And the thing about those truths is that they're both true. And that's hard to wrap our kind of conventional minds around the fact that we are not separate, that everything is interconnected. And that's a spiritual truth from all ancient wisdom traditions. And it's also a truth of science. But uh, I think where we can really get tripped up is the fact that we are different. You know, there is diversity and there's also consequences from that difference historically, including oppression, hierarchies and inequities. And those differences can sometimes make us feel like the first truth isn't really truly true. Right. You know, a lot of people err on the side of our unity or the absolute But I thought you struck a really nice balance when you wrote, we don't want to get stuck in our stories, but we do want to understand our different histories. I think that's what you're saying. 
Yeah, definitely. Like you said, some people lean towards that absolute truth because it often feels better to feel harmonious and interconnected and, and not feel those differences. And the truth is some of us actually lean towards the difference and get lost in the complexity because there's a lot to untangle there. And if we're not careful, we can get tangled up in that and, and miss out on the truth of our interconnection too. Right. It's really easy to get caught up in our identities and to feel special or different and to forget entirely that we're related. But there are plenty of systems in place that keep us feeling that way, I think. It's not just internal, it's also external. Yeah, the truth of our differences are played out in society through systems of oppression and domination. So it's not that that part is not true. Unfortunately, especially if we're committed to the work of undoing those injustices, we can get overwhelmed by that. Right. You know, your fellow teacher talked about this in the pandemic. We see in so many ways how we're all connected and related. On the other hand, we see the inequities that it really brings up and uh, makes so apparent. Yeah, my friend Dara Williams, she used this metaphor that this pandemic has made it clear that we're in the shared ocean of experience, but it's also shown us that we don't have the same boats. And I say, you know, some of us are literally in yachts and some people have barely an inner tube to survive what's happening. Right. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> it's a very strange time. I mean, I wonder, the book came out in the middle of the pandemic and, well, we seem to be getting ever further into the middle of the pandemic. We don't seem to be leaving it anytime soon anyway. So I imagine people getting this book and reading it home under lockdown or under restricted conditions. What do you hope they might get from it? Because it is a time when it's so easy to feel utterly isolated and alone, especially people who live by themselves. Yeah, especially those of us who do feel that sense of loneliness. I hope that the message of our interconnection and our fundamental belonging, that this is the truth of reality and no amount of personal experience, including trauma, nor collective experience can undo that truth. And I also hope for those of us who are trying to untangle the complexity of this moment, that we also take some refuge in that truth. And like we were saying, some of us tend towards the, we can call it spiritual bypass of clinging to that harmony because we don't want to look at the complexity. So I hope for those, there'll be some bit of um, willingness to lean into the relative truth of our differences and what that has unleashed. Yeah, well, a combination of factors really put it all in our face in recent months or since June anyway, since the uh, anti-racist protests and the general disruption and the political confusion and a sense of creeping authoritarianism. I won't get too political, although it's impossible not to, frankly. I find that the book comes at a very interesting time because it's dealing both with the fact that there's a unity there, but the differences just can't be ignored. Uh, it's so apparent and so painful right now in certain ways. But you also are a very hopeful person. So how do you find hope in all of this? What are you thinking about? I, I feel like, um, you know, there's a lot of consciousness 
raising and opening right now and and not just because of the pandemic although that's led to so much and not just because of the black lives matter movement although that's also led to a different kind of awareness but it predates that and i'm curious to hear what your reflection is on this if you agree that the past 15 10 years there's been just an explosion in um, people turning towards awakening really in, in search of that. And we see that in Dharma and we see that in the mindfulness movement. I mean, it's really hard to get into a retreat even when right. we had, when we had retreats still, right. Mm-hmm. right. That, um, there's such a, a, a hunger and a longing for, um, understanding and for wisdom and for really for depth and, that that is really encouraging to me. So that sense of hope, I think, predated this moment, and seeing all of the amazing response to these moments, both the pandemic and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, also give me hope. Right. Well, to answer your question, several weeks ago we spoke, and I was feeling rather hopeless or pessimistic, and I thought a lot about that after I got off the phone with you, and I thought to myself that pessimism is a kind of luxury I can't afford. You know, it will keep me doing nothing. It'll say, what's the point? And I won't in any way be a part of the solution. But my experience pretty much bears out what you're talking about, because as soon as the pandemic hit or the lockdown hit, we began offering free live stream teachings and 30,000 people showed up within days. And if subscriptions and course registrations are any indication Yes, people are hungry for this, and they're looking for other ways. And despite a lot of the challenges that we face and people who want to cling to old ways, there are a lot of people out there who don't, even when it's threatening, because change can be very threatening even when it's positive, especially if you're comfortable. So that's my response. I mean, so I kind of came around to your more hopeful but realistic view. I'm glad my proselytizing is working, James. Well, yes. Well, the book worked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the book worked on me. I really like it. And I'd like our listeners to know how much I liked it. You know, you write a lot about your feelings of not belonging when you were growing up. So I'd just like to give you a chance to talk a little bit about how you grew up and the sort of unique circumstances in which you grew up. You know, you came here when you were a toddler. You grew up in this country as your own. But there are a lot of intersecting identities there. And there was a long period of your feeling like you didn't belong, which is why you speak to it so eloquently. Could you say something about your upbringing and your background? Sure. Yeah. We we moved to this country in 1973 from Ethiopia. I'm half Ethiopian and half Eritrean. And we moved to a white upper middle class neighborhood and we were the only black people for blocks in Washington, D.C., which at that point was still the chocolate city. So we were kind of in a, a unique position in terms of most black folks in D.C. at the time. But we also didn't really grow up amongst a lot of Ethiopians near trans. So I felt out of place in the white community, you know, and, and dealt with a lot of racial aggression and a lot of feeling an outsider even if there wasn't that aggression all the time. And then I also felt outside of the Ethiopian community because I couldn't speak Amharic fluently. We weren't raised in a particular cultural context that really made me comfortable there. And then I also didn't really feel connected to the African-American community because that wasn't my culture either, even if I I did identify as black. And there's no denying that I'm a dark-skinned black woman. 
So there was a, a lot of confusion about my identity, identified a lot with white culture and engaged in what Pastor Michael McBride calls reaching for whiteness, you know, listening to white music and trying to adopt white culture as my own. So it was a lot of searching, especially in my teens when I started to kind of recognize that um, just kind of lack of connection to these various communities. Um, and, you know, just felt like a general weirdo. I was a tomboy growing up. Um, I was kind of nerdy, but not really academic. Um, so I had a lot of feeling like there was no one place for me. And I think that's the reason why I turned to spiritual practice so early. My brother became a Hare Krishna when I was 15 or 16, and so started reading Dharma quite young and ended up majoring in comparative religious studies. So it was my good fortune <laughs> to be such a weirdo because it led me onto this path. Part of what you're describing is the typical assimilation of an immigrant family. And I think it's ironic because assimilation is driven by a desire to belong and also just to survive. I mean, just learning the language is required. On the other hand, while we do that to belong, it can cut us off from ourselves and our roots, leading us to feel that we don't belong here, there, or anywhere. So you really got a big dose of it. Uh, yeah, and again, you know, I like to say that it was my my good fortune. So just like with practice, it, it's not that practice is easy or comfortable, but the rewards are powerful from being able to stay with that. And it doesn't matter what our experience is, pleasant or unpleasant, if we can really be in it, it can really lead us to a lot of joy. It took me time and practice, but I did discover a joy and freedom in that not belonging, which was my belonging. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because you talk about how immigrant children are not only linguistically bilingual, but they're also fluent in different ways of being. And as painful as that can be, and as much as we can feel that we're the other, that exercises a certain muscle and, and sort of develops a remarkable skill, a fluidity of being. Yeah. If we're not overwhelmed by it, if we don't believe the messages that there's something wrong with us because we are constantly having to move through different worlds and maybe not feeling um, at home in any of them completely, there is, there's a, a real resiliency that can be built from, you know, what's often called code switching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you talked about being with discomfort and, um, you had a realization in the hospital, uh, when you were undergoing cancer treatment and we excerpted it in the magazine and it was about dealing, as you said, with pleasant and unpleasant and then neither nor, I mean, it's a Buddhist teaching, you know, being drawn toward the pleasant, feeling aversion toward the unpleasant, and sort of spacing out when it's neither nor, when you're in a neutral space. But as difficult as it was, the pain, the physical pain you felt sort of became a kind of teacher, or it at least precipitated a realization in that moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's such a power to physical pain. And, you know, I don't want to underestimate people who suffer with chronic pain or really severe pain. But most of us really turn away from basic pain, let's say, in our lives, whether it's physical or emotional. And of course, the teachings are talking about all the time being able to be with that and to just witness and 
eventually come to a, a deep understanding of how we're usually tossed and turned by that experience of pleasant and unpleasant. But when we can stay with it and not get lost in the stories of it, you know, we're not struggling with it. So much of our suffering is a resistance to that pain. And I, I experienced uh, a lot of physical pain in the hospital and in treatment in general. And being able to witness when I was actually experiencing pain and when I was telling myself a story about the pain and, and really intensifying it um, through my mind, through my thoughts, through my relationship to the pain, um, that was a real liberation when I could sort of let go of that and just be with what was happening. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I injured my knee pretty badly. And for all the reading I do, for all the sitting I do, for all the practice I do, it didn't occur to me to be with the pain, although we hear that again and again and again. And I came to the conclusion that although in sitting meditation, I get in touch with sensation, ordinarily, I'm not aware of my body. I'm kind of divorced from it. And this knee, as bad as it hurt, I started to look at more as a gift it's an anchor. I come back to it. And it requires that I be in the body, that I pay attention to it, that I know it's there and that I have to treat it in certain ways. You know, in the magazine, there's a picture of you dancing. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> right. It's how our teachers spend their time in quarantine. And there you are dancing. But it took you a while to come to dance, didn't it? Yes, it did. It's true. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about how um, how disconnected we are from the body and even the ways we've interpreted the teachings um, as moderns and as Westerners is, is really disembodied. And so dance was not something I grew up with, even though there's a rich history and tradition of dance in, in Ethiopian culture, as in most cultures. But I think a lot through colonization and through westernization of our culture, dance began to be frowned upon in certain Christian communities and in my families. So I didn't really grow up with a connection to the body in that way. And I think add to that the years of training that we all get from the time we first go to school to really be in our heads and not our bodies, divorced me, like you were talking about, from that felt sense of my experience. So I really came to dance later in my late teens and early 20s and, and really started connecting to my body through yoga and eventually through centering my dharma practice in my body as well, which took a while for me to, to really feel into how to do that. Yeah. I mean, we live also in a culture where you're supposed to have the right kind of body. And if you don't, you flee it because somehow or another, it's the source of pain and discomfort, which brings me to something else that you talk about in the book. You talk about the drive to compare and compete. And all you have to do is go on social media. I mean, I, I remember seeing a friend who seemed to be having this fabulous life on Facebook and um, he was playing in different clubs and everything was going great. And I called him, I said, gee, it seems like you're having such a great time. And he said, oh, I'm so depressed. But he felt compelled to put this image of himself up, he said, as if to convince himself of something because we see everybody else and, and we compare ourselves. So why don't you say something about that? Yeah, you know, social media is kind of the really ramped up steroid version of it. 
But it really starts from the time we're little, that we're constantly being compared and learn to compete. Even if we don't think of ourselves as competitive, we're not talking about you know team sports here. We're just talking about the sense that we're always on this ladder of improvement, whether it's grades or looks or popularity or you know money, success. And even our practice can start to fall into that, that it becomes this ladder of self-improvement. And of course, that's exactly the opposite of what the teachings are, are really trying to, to show us. You know, we're, we're not trying to get away from our pain. We're not trying to race towards something we think is better. We're really learning to be with our experience as it is in this moment. And that training that we've experienced and, and um, received since we were young is so built into us that we start to apply it unconsciously to everything. So undoing that... Um, real conditioning and, and habit pattern around comparison and competition, it really takes a lot of awareness and attention to our own minds and our own behavior. I thought Lama Rod Owens had the best antidote to social media. You know, he describes himself as a fat person and he took off his shirt and put himself on Instagram. <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant way to kind of say, this is my body and I'm in it, you know. I was yeah. impressed by that. And and there are, you know, there are things that we're just learning to really look at, like fat phobia and fat shaming is a huge one that people still talk about, even teachers on retreat will sort of unconsciously talk about fatness in a negative way, not recognizing that there already there's a hierarchy in our minds and in the way we look at others that is seeping into to our dharma. Yeah, my big moment was when I was in my 20s. And like my father, my hair started to go gray. And I thought I can diet. And I thought, no, no, I'm too proud to diet. <laughs> I'll deal with it. So I've dealt with it. But that was a step in the right direction. Um, you know, you talk about the inner critic too. But interestingly, and maybe you can explain this, you refer to the inner critic or traditions in which the inner critic is considered the voice of our ancestors. What does that mean? Well, we now know that we don't only inherit genetic physical material, but there's also an epigenetic information that we receive from our ancestors. So not only are the color of your eyes or you know the, the shape of your body determined by your genetics, but also certain behavioral, mental, emotional characteristics are passed down. And so these things that we can't even name where we got them. They're just sort of traits in our larger family, maybe anxiety or neurosis or depression. We think of them as, you know, faults, but really they were the coping mechanisms of people who lived through trauma, which is everyone, um, people who lived through different circumstances. And that, that intelligence you know, that, that adaptation got handed down. And sometimes it's outlived its purpose. So that level of anxiety in response to trauma in two generations back maybe is not serving us anymore because we're not living in those exact same circumstances. But we can think of it as our ancestors in a way trying to protect us unknowingly, unconsciously. Yeah, you know, I had an experience like that. I was on retreat and I had an odd sensation that was actually quite familiar. It turned out to be the inner critic in the way that you're talking about. And I heard my grandfather's voice, my father's father. He said, I came to this country to build a life for us, and you're taking 10 days off to do what? Uh, you know, 
<laughs> and that was a perfect example. When I was reading it, I thought, ah, that's sort of what maybe what she means. <laughs> you know, he had to work. He had to focus. He, you know, the idea of going on retreat. I mean, fortunately, he was gone by the time I started practicing Buddhism. But <laughs> that's the question he might have asked. Well, and, and he's probably looking down, um, you know, just really so happy for you. Probably, I hope. <laughs> You're listening to James Shaheen in conversation with Sebene Selassie on Tricycle Talks, a podcast from Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. For 30 years, Tricycle has been dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices available to everyone. We do this through our print and digital magazine, our monthly screenings of spiritual films, weekly Dharma Talk videos, a Buddhism for Beginners educational microsite, an ebook library and a variety of online courses with expert teachers. If you're interested in learning more, sign up for a four-week free trial at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now, let's return to the conversation with James Shaheen and Sabane Selassie, author of the book, You Belong, A Call for Connection. So, Sebene, let's pick this up again with trauma. You mentioned trauma. You talk about in the book traumatic patterns in ways that I hadn't heard before, you know, as strategies for survival, for instance, that would never have occurred to me. And you also write that we needn't be in contention with it. So can you say something about where these ideas come from with regard to trauma? Yeah, you know, um, trauma is complex. So this is not to dismiss especially complex trauma and people who are incapacitated and quite triggered in their trauma patterns. But like with the inner critics, which are maybe, you know, small T trauma that gets passed down, we can have trauma from the past show up in our lives, trauma from our ancestors. Now, I'm not referring to in the book traumatic things that happen to us in our own lives and you know how we navigate that because that's more complex but in terms of this intergenerational trauma again we can think of it as patterns that get handed down to help us understand this and my understanding grew through what's called indigenous focusing oriented therapy which is a technique created by a Matisse elder, an indigenous elder from Canada named Shirley Turcotte. And that's really where I started to understand more deeply how we can think of epigenetic information really as, as wisdom, as patterns that get handed down to help us survive, basically. And again, like I said, some of that is not useful anymore, given the situations we might be in and can be released. Yeah, I, I just thought that was empowering to hear to include anyway, a positive take on trauma, because we think of it as so destructive as if we were ruined by it. And this, that just seemed a very empowering way to look at it. But speaking of cultural judgments, can you tell me more about how you see the pejorative term woo-woo, in other words, not based in reality, and why it's used to undermine certain ideas or belief systems, even meditation? A lot of people are sort of desperate to explain to you that they're doing it because of the science, that it's a very rational pursuit. I think it was Sam Harris who said, even if they proved it was bad for you, I'd still do it. <laughs> it's one of the things from him that I really liked hearing. So why woo-woo and what's the big deal? 
This book is a lot about that balance between the absolute and the relative. And some lean towards that relative, but in a very culturally specific way. So this reliance on science sometimes leaves out the mystery of the absolute. And so when we're talking about science here, we're really talking about material science, you know, and the scientific materialism of modernity, which needs rational, intellectual, usually numeric, quote unquote, provable information to justify different things. And of course, the absolute is full of mystery and wonder and a not knowing that can't necessarily be pointed to. And there is some science that helps us understand that, including physics and the science that goes deep enough to show that there is a not knowing and a mystery. So a lot of times what gets thrown into woo-woo is um, things that can't be explained, you know, the sort of absolute side of the equation. And that happens to coincide a lot with racial and cultural dominance. So on the relative side of materialistic science, you have the colonial project and the enlightenment and a lot of dismissal of indigenous ways of knowing and the mystery. And on the absolute side, you have these indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous tools which get classified as woo-woo until they're proven. So meditation and yoga fell into that side for a long time until we could show brain scans showing that there was a positive effect, many people would have dismissed it. And there are still things being dismissed because they haven't been proven yet. Right. I think my first person experience is enough to keep me doing it. I'm I'm much easier to deal with when I do it. <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, that's true for a lot of us with meditation and more and more people are coming to it. But what about the things that have not yet been proven that still seem woo-woo to us? You know, we could include chanting or bowing or devotional practices, energetic practices. Those things are called belief and sort of cultural baggage because they seem so woo-woo. They don't seem to have a rational basis. And so until that day, we won't make use of them. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So as you know, Seb, one of my favorite parts of the book and one of the most moving parts of the book is when you need to take your sister up to a community in upstate New York to see if she'd like to live there because she has moved in with you after your parents died, after your mother died, I believe. Yeah. So my mom died uh, in 2016, just after that election. Uh, and my sister, who's intellectually disabled, four years older than me, I became her guardian and she came to live with me and my partner. And she lived with us for a year as we explored what we were going to do, if she was going to stay with us permanently, how we were going to navigate it. We both have work that takes us out of the home a lot, traveling or, or working you know, for intensive periods of time. So we weren't quite sure how we were going to do it. And then I learned about this Rudolf Steiner community upstate called Camp Hill Village, which is part of a network of communities around the world called Camp Hill Communities. And they're integrated communities where people, adults with intellectual disabilities, live with adults without those disabilities in community. And this particular community also has children. And so, yeah, we found this community and checked it out. And I was completely blown away at the just beauty and uh, thoughtfulness and care and love in this community. And so I asked her if she would be willing to go and visit. And she was pretty upset when I told her about it. 
because she was also wondering what was going to happen if she was going to stay with us forever. But within the first half hour of being there, she was completely sold on it and did a trial month and then moved in in January of uh, 2018. So maybe I'm reading too much into it, but one of the things that really struck me and moved me, I'm thinking, I've known about your sister. You've told me about her before. And I was thinking, Seb takes care of her sister. But when I read it and she stayed at that community and she was so happy, it occurred to me, she takes care of you too. And I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, she really does. And on so many levels, she's such a loving person and our bond is very deep because my brother is is eight years older than me and moved out of the house. So it was really the two of us growing up and that um, that dynamic of having someone in your life who is quite different from other people. I learned so much from that. And I have to say, you know, it wasn't always easy. It was a whole other aspect of my feeling that I didn't belong is that I had a disabled sister. Um, and needed to protect and defend her and, you know, make sure that she was okay, you know, in in all the various situations we were in as kids. But now I I just get so much love. And, you know, I don't know anyone in my life or have ever met anyone who says, I love you so much as my sister does. And she actually happens to be with me this year, this week on vacation. Um, and I've just, you know, both Frederick and I, my partner, and I have heard, I love you so many times in the past few days. <laughs> oh, that's nice. You know, you're a teacher and I read the book with that in mind. And there are so many teachings in the book that are so perfectly targeted to our time. And one of the things that I really thought about when you were writing about being in the hospital and you looked at a picture of somebody somewhere, I don't remember where a child who was suffering greatly from starvation. And all of a sudden it occurred to you, well, why not me? And sort of the self-pity, the prison of that self-pity seemed to lift. Why don't you say something about that and being in the body or being with the body and saying, why not me? Yeah, this is one of the, again, good fortunes of our different experience. And when I was first diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, when I was 34, you know, there was a lot of why me because I was young. I, I didn't know anyone my age and hardly anyone at all who had been sick or died from cancer. But there was a lot of self-pity and, and just anger and frustration of seeing other people healthy and well and really grappling with quite serious illness at that point. So that picture of that child and mother in Darfur so the time of the Darfur conflicts, it was probably 2007. I, I was really struck by um, the tenderness and the pain in the eyes of the mother and child and the connection between them and just really tapped into the humanity of that suffering, of physical pain, of disease, of death. And in that moment, I just really snapped out of it, you know, to, to understand that thousands of people die of cancer every year and many of them children. And so, so why not me? And that's really been a powerful refrain for me ever since. And, and again, one of the good fortune of experiencing illness, experiencing pain at a young age to have that kind of understanding is really a blessing in a sense. Yeah. I think at one point you say you wouldn't wish cancer on anyone, but you wouldn't switch your experience for anything. 
Did I get that right? Yes. And it's very true. You know, at the time I was first diagnosed, I had a friend who was diagnosed as HIV positive. We're both in our early 30s. And in kind of one of those why me, why not me moments, we both realized that we were so much better prepared for illness and death than many of our friends who had never experienced any physical hardships. You know, the book is so personal. You talk about alternative treatments when you first discovered that you had cancer, like coffee colonics, which made me laugh, I have to say. (laughs) Um, You talk about hot flashes and surgically induced menopause. You're very, very open, and it kind of challenged me. And so I'll be a little bit open. You know, when I was in my 30s, my partner was dying, and people would look at us very strangely. You know, if somebody like clearly has AIDS, people look and they shudder and they think, oh my, never suspecting for a moment that one day they'll be there. But the interesting thing to me about it was he said at one point, you know, people think something went wrong and nothing went wrong. And I heard that from you. I really heard that from you and I hadn't heard it in 30 years, but nothing went wrong. Nothing at all. This is perfectly normal. That's how I heard that. Yeah, one of the biggest lies of this culture is that aging, sickness, and death are mistakes. Right. When in fact, they're the truth of life. Uh, Yeah, there's no getting around that. It's funny because I have a brother who's very kind to me and is always concerned about my health. If he thinks I'm wearing the wrong shoes, I'll get a box of shoes (laughs) in the mail. And he sent me this book called Lifespan why we age, and why we don't have to. Well, that made me laugh. (laughs) I I will look at it and I will talk to him about it. And if he's listening to this, uh, thank you, Tim. But, uh, you know, why we don't have to. I love that. It's so so much a part of our culture. I'm sure sure they acknowledge that at one point it's over. (laughs) But the fact that that would appeal, you know, to a general audience or a mass audience is, is understandable. Yeah, there's that question in the mind whenever I see someone, especially when there's a lot of greed or hoarding or hatred, you know, to just kind of ask the question, do they not realize they will die too? Right. You know, I think one of the things that helped me through the 80s dealing with a lot of death was to realize this will happen to me too. Mm -hmm. It, It was very helpful for whatever reason that relaxed me a little bit. So... A lot of your work is also like this about how things happen to us, but you suggest again and again that we can find freedom in how we respond to it. And that's sort of how I understood what you were doing. I mean, you had three cancer diagnoses, is that right? Yes. And you've been through a lot and here you are healthy, which I'm very happy about, but how we respond to it seems to be everything. Yes, you know, that is the the core of the teachings that we can't change other people, we can't change uh, necessarily external circumstances. All we have the power to do is shift our relationship to things. And that's actually where the freedom is. That to me is the core of the Buddha's teachings. And, you know, and just to say, I've, I've been through a lot, and there are a lot of consequences to that. I have a lot of physical challenges and like anyone else, I still am untangling trauma, both inherited and experienced in my life. But there's still a, the possibility of freedom, even in the midst of our, our struggles. 
Okay. So there's some practice questions, Seb, if you don't mind. You're a yeah. teacher, so I figure you have to help us out here. So how should we practice in order to attune to our inherent belonging? How do we meet each moment with creativity instead of reactivity? And how do we open to our most painful experiences? These come from the staff. Oh, wow. You know, light questions. Um, <laughs> well, I, I sort of give this uh, trajectory of practice, but it starts with grounding yourself. And to me, uh, that goes back to what we were talking about before, that we really can't um, have a, a depth of experience of belonging if we don't first belong to the body. And so the two of us were talking about that sort of disembodied experience of practice that I think many of us, especially Westerners, especially those of us who you know, are drawn to kind of the intellectual aspects of practice, that can happen. You know, we'll, we'll even um, tend to focus our awareness at, in our head, you know, at our nose, at our nostrils. So this embodied awareness that actually connects us to a felt sense of our experience, and that's that's a, a term from focusing, which was uh, coined by Eugene Genlin, who saw that uh, psychology patients, uh, people in therapy, the ones that had the most success were ones that could actually connect to their bodies, connect to a felt sense of their experience. So for me, it always has to start there. And that means an awareness or mindfulness of the body. And that is a, a very powerful and endlessly explorable practice. Okay, thank you. Here's another one. How do systemic oppression and greed, anger, and delusion relate to one another? Is it really a matter of starting with oneself? <sighs> These are small questions. Yeah, Saturday. really. <laughs> I don't even know if I answered all of the first ones. Um, you know, this is complex. So I've been leading groups and workshops and communities through an exploration of how our inner experience and our outer experience, our identities and our histories, both individually and collectively, are intertwined. And every time I teach anything around this, I first start by naming that this is unbearably complex and you know, advise that maybe we start with a nap because it's really starting to untangle what's ours, you know, what we've, we've inherited from our own families and cultures, from the culture around us. It's really um, a step that I call knowing yourself. So, so first you, you ground yourself and then you know yourself. You really have to start to, to listen to not the stories in your mind, but to, to start to witness the thought patterns and untangle where they're coming from. Most of our thoughts are uh, patterned into us, you know, conditioned by the society around us. And so we can see our unconscious biases. We can see our internalized depression. We can start to witness that around us. And it's really about relationship. So yes, it does start with ourselves, but especially if we're in communities and within our families, but if we're in practice communities, we have to start doing that work relationally too. So I think that is a much, much longer conversation. And, you know, we've had many conversations one-on-one -on -one about these things, James, and, you know, it takes time and effort. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, it's interesting. I mean, there's all of that out there, but we can be our own worst oppressors sometimes too. 
You know, yeah, there's a wonderful trans activist, Tourmaline, and she posted recently, when I say abolish the cops, I mean also the cops in my head. Yeah, absolutely. So we're running out of time. So I'm going to challenge our listeners and me and everyone else. Karen Jensen, our web editor who helps me prepare these podcasts, and I were talking about this one in particular. And at some point, you did meta practice for George W. Bush when you just couldn't deal with how you felt about him otherwise. Uh, that's wishing somebody loving kindness. And we were wondering, uh, have you graduated to Donald Trump, or is that something that you're <laughs> saving for later? So it's interesting because I was doing meta practice, but I made up my own practice. So I wasn't directing phrases towards George W. Bush. I was actually going through kind of a contemplation, visualization of being George W. Bush from the time of his conception until that present day, which was probably 2004 or five or something. And every day I would do this for weeks, that a big chunk of my sitting practice was really just imagining what it would be like to grow up as him, to go to the same schools, to experience the, the community and lifestyle he did. And the insight I had was very deep that I would be him. And of course, we all know that logically. If I grow up as you, James, I would be you. But to really understand that is to go into a deep and sort of profound connection to the truth of anyone's experience. So no, I have not done that same practice with our current president, and I probably won't. But I feel like the, the practice I did, uh, while it doesn't completely remove my judgments of other people, it does help me have more perspective about, about that fact that none of us can be anything but who we are. And ultimately, we still have to belong to each other because that's the truth. Well, that's a wonderful way to end. So, Sabine Selassie, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you, Sabine, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you, James. Really great to talk to you today. You've been listening to Sabine Selassie, author of You Belong, A Call for Connection, here on Tricycle Talks. We love to hear your thoughts. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.